She Did Her Way podcast, episode 108 with Sean Simpson. Welcome to the She Did It Her Way podcast, a collective of interviews with top female entrepreneurs from around the globe who have done it their way. These women are disruptors, savvy, courageous, confident, innovative, decisive, unconventional, and humble. Our ladies have proven business models, have taken risks, and have failed only for success to follow. Join us as they share their stories, behaviors, habits, mindset, thought processes, and what it is like to be a woman who means business. And now, here's your host, Amanda Bolin. Hey, She Did It Her Way family. Welcome back to the She Did It Her Way podcast. We are coming off of a long Thanksgiving weekend. If you guys celebrated, I don't know about you, but I definitely probably had my fair share of food and then fair share of wine as well. We celebrated three Thanksgivings, which was fantastic, but definitely need to make sure that I get to the gym this week and curb my eating habits and drink tons of green juice and vegetables. So, But thank you guys so much for tuning in. And if you hadn't listened to last week's episode, make sure you do or make sure you visit the show notes because there's still some calendar slots open. I just, again, want to chat with you, learn more about you. How can the podcast be an even better resource or what are you looking for? And uh, just really just get to know you and get to know the listeners. So make sure you guys head on over there from last week's episode show notes 107 and you can find the Calendly link and sign up there. Okay, so for today's episode, we have Sean Simpson, and we're talking about how to build your community. And one thing, um, Sean, that she's done is she's built her community both in New Zealand and in San Francisco. She had this desire to want to be able to be location independent and leverage her skills and travel when she wanted to. And so we talk about that journey along with build community value by becoming a community mentor and how to do that, undercover how to set a schedule when working in different geographic areas, and acquire the methods to say no. I love this because I could probably practice saying no because I get so excited about things that I just jump to saying yes right away and so much other stuff. So make sure you guys tune in with Sean Simpson on how to build your community. Okay, we have Sean Simpson on the podcast today. And I, Sean and I first met, oh my gosh, was it like three years ago maybe? No, it was probably about two years ago when you came through Chicago with Miss Courtney K. But it's been a long time since we've caught up. How are you? I'm doing good. Currently in San Francisco, but I'm really excited to um, be chatting with you and catching up on, I guess, our year of or years of exponential growth that we've been having. Um, yes, that is definitely very much on point. Um, Sean, why don't you tell us what it is that you do and then we'll just start the conversation from there. I think the common joke amongst my friends and family and I guess general community is that I'm a jack of all trades. Um, but what I've been doing for the last two years is running a, a community in a place called the Kiwi Landing Pad. We're a not-for-profit um, from New Zealand. That's why I have a weird accent. Um, and basically, we help New Zealand entrepreneurs expand into the U.S. market. Um, you know, New Zealand's a country with 4.5 million people. We're pretty small. And um, the early entrepreneurs who were quite successful in New Zealand wanted to pay it forward and make that journey over the ditch per se a little bit easier and basically it's my job to meet with all of these incoming companies so we meet with thousands of entrepreneurs a year really figure out like how we can help them sort of expand greater work on their businesses and then plug them into the right place so it really comes down to sort of networks information and access and I've got the great job of figuring out what that means and what that means um, for each company that I deal with. 
<laughs> How did you go from um, like, are you originally from New Zealand and then you came to San Francisco and then how did you find an opportunity like so niche as that? I feel like New Zealand is a place where it's like two degrees of separation. And uh, so when I was 22, I went, uh, well, I, I like challenges and problem solving, as you probably figured out. So <laughs> I decided that I wanted to be location independent and I didn't even know what that meant at the time. And this is about, about like four years ago. And I said, oh, I wonder if I can earn money online. And then I started earning, I think, like $2. I earned online, like transcribing or something for two hours, which is like terrible um, ROI <laughs> on time. And then I was like, okay, if you can earn like $2, you can earn 10 If you can earn 10 you can earn 100 and then you can earn 1000 So then I had, you know, a pretty great admin career. And then I wanted to transition into a marketing career. So I started building up these, these skills online, worked for a um, video production company. And they were like, okay, you need to optimize these 500 videos for search. So I got really good at search engine optimization. And then I found the best search firm in New Zealand. And I was like, oh, I want to learn more about digital marketing. Can you teach me everything you know about like AdWords, pay-per-click and all that stuff? And then so I got really good at it. And I was, I'm actually a pretty good writer as well. So then when I was leaving um, in 2000 and end of 2013, they were like, oh, but you can't leave. You actually started to add value. And so what mm. I had done is effectively like turn my free time into money and uh, decided that I would travel around the world and um, work online and I was actually studying full-time doing my degree by distance learning um, online as well so I was I think one of my moments where I realized I had like achieved my dream was when I was sitting in the Grand Canyon and I was sitting on the king's seat so basically you're like dangling off the edge of the earth and oh my like, gosh <laughs> it was quite freaky and I was like oh you know I published these two blog posts this morning at like seven o'clock in the morning and now I'm sitting on the edge of the earth doing something that I really want to do you know traveling around the world and then later I'll go back and I'll read my textbooks and write an essay I was like wow this is what it's like and I was like earning like $400 a week at the time or something but I mean when you're traveling around you don't really need that much money because you have like no expenses and you just you know need a place to sleep and you got to eat and then do your activities so that and then well long-winded version no that's good I love I love those and then, so basically what happened after that was I, um, the founders of um, the two companies that I was working online for, um, one of them was actually in San Francisco and they were like, oh, well, if you want to be in technology, which they're a technology company uh, based in the cloud, they were like, you need to be in San Francisco and you need to come and check it out because you'll definitely get a sense of whether or not you want to do this for the rest of your life or for the, for the near term. And so I landed in San Francisco and I was like, oh my gosh, this is like my spirit place. I really want to be here. <laughs> It was like when you've been in Asia for a long time, you start to miss weird stuff like the wind. And it's like even in Los Angeles, you know, you run to the window after three weeks and you're like, oh, is there going to be a cloud? Please be clouds. But you need this sense of change. Right. And yeah. Yeah. I'm just chuckling because one of my really good friends lives out in L.A. And the one time when I went to go visit her, she and she's from the Midwest, from Iowa. And she She's like, I just wish sometimes it would like rain here. It's always so sunny and it's so bizarre because you would never expect someone to say that. But I completely I could I could agree. I would I would understand that, too. Yeah, it was um, I just wanted like change. I really like change and I like adapting to stuff. And I also think um, I read a post-it note on a wall um, recently, which said something to the effect of winter breeds creativity and like innovation and adaptability in people. And it's actually a better place for entrepreneurs, like places that have 
a lot of change that's quite drastic and you're part of the environment or a victim of the environment or at the mercy of it, it actually breeds greater creativity. Um, Really? Yeah, because I think you have to change the environment and you have to deal with what it throws at you rather than just being in this constant state of comfort. That's a really interesting, I I would, yeah, I could definitely see how that would impact someone. So cheers to that for living in the Midwest then for anyone who's listening, right? <laughs> I, I, you've got uh, some of the worst weather in the country and the best, right? Yeah, the very much of a, a massive swing. Um, tell us what it, like a day to day is then, tell us more about like um, a community manager and then building that, like how do you build it and what have you found to be most successful? Because I know for listeners wanting to know if they're a business and they're building up community, like what is truly important to have a successful community? I think I'm a pretty unconventional community manager because I'm not like an online community manager in the sense, like very much in charge of like figuring out how to grow a country community. Um, but my journey has been pretty exciting. When I started, I had no idea how how to be a community manager, what that even meant and what their job was. Um, I guess it's common sense in a way. Um, but I definitely started with an offline community. And I think I started with about five people. I remember, um, you know, I just got my job at the Kiwi Learning Pad. I was like, I'm going to throw an event. And then five people came and then I cried. I was like, no one likes me. Like, why is no one coming to my event? And then someone turned around and they're like, you've done it once. And I was like, oh and then so I did it again and then like 16 people came and then I think three months later like I throw a holiday party and like 100 people came and I was like wow this is cool it's like scale and so those 100 people came from um I kind of say with community and a lot of my friends what we call the sentiment is you have to do the unscalable to scale and that means go sit down with someone for half an hour figure out what they're about what they're doing why they're doing it and make them feel like you're actually interested in them. And then from that point onwards, whenever you email them, whenever you send them something, they'll have this like sort of draw to you. They'll be like, Oh, that person actually really cared. They came and had coffee with me. They know what I'm about. You know, they kind of know my mission and they want to be on board with it. And then you've kind of got this like almost a heartstring from them, which is you invested in them. So they will invest back is the theory that I have. And so that's kind of proven to work. Um, time and time again for me so far. Did you do anything um, with your community, let's say, like in between the events when you went from five to 16 to 100? Yeah, I think it's um, so I kind of pride myself on being community led. So very much like what do people want and what do they need? And then how can you start ticking off those those things that they need? And um, so basically it comes down to, I guess, what do I call it? It's the curation, which is people just want to meet people, right? And and they need information and access to stuff. So it's either they need to know something that they don't know, or they need to know someone who has that knowledge or can get them in a room somewhere. Um, so if you start fleshing that out and figuring out how you meet more people so you can introduce more people, and then how you figure out sort of the lessons or uncover the lessons and learnings of people who have been there and done that before them, then you start becoming really valuable to the people in your community because they'll come to you and they'll be like, so I'm doing this thing. And you'll be like, oh, you need to talk to Joe. Joe's in blah, blah, blah. And they're like, wow, you're like, you know, you've, you you understand this problem. Um So I think very much a a community manager is very much like a connector and a listener. Um, I 
got really excited after I'd be at the landing pad for six months because people would come in and they'd either be, if they were really excited, I'd be the first person that they would come and tell about like their business or something that's going really well. Or if things are going terribly, they'll be like, Sean, we need to throw darts at the board because we've got this problem and we don't know how to solve it. And it's like, they just need someone to care, you know, like what everyone is doing in life is actually pretty hard for the most part. And um, they just need someone or an alternative perspective sometimes. Um, I think other activities, like definitely start with events, like events are a really good way. Um, they just need to be interesting. They need to bring people together. Um, the other interesting thing is um, I learned that, so New Zealand, obviously, you know, we're a small place. There's a lot of really talented New Zealanders living offshore and you know how like people will be like, oh, come, come to drinks. And you're like, oh, do I really just want to go and drink with a group of people from where I'm from? Maybe not. Do, and then I figured out that if you tell these successful Kiwis that they could then help other Kiwis coming up the ranks be like them or go on their journey or you could basically help them be as successful as they were, they felt this like personal driver to give back, realizing that they were actually special and could help sort of create a pathway to success for these people coming through. So then you're like, can you please come and have drinks with these people and share your success so you can make them more successful? It's like this reframing of like one sentence that like made such a big difference in the early days for us and continues to work. That's ingenious. What made you think of that? Um, trying to figure out how you can talk to really important people can be challenging sometimes because I think, you know, as, um, you know, as people starting out in your career or as, as you know, people mid-level, you're always like, I have no right speaking to people when really you do, you just have to be very specific in what your ask is and make sure that the person on the other end of the ask can actually fulfill what you're asking them to do. And so I think it really comes down to that. I that is so I like how you reframed it that that's like a really good tidbit on that what um so when you travel in be, like between New Zealand and then San Francisco like how do you set your schedule to know when you have to go back and forth and then what exactly are you doing when you're in New Zealand and what are you doing when you're in San Francisco so um my trips to New Zealand have becoming have become way more frequent so I'm based in San Francisco basically full time and when I go back to New Zealand it's a few things so uh New Zealand used to uh struggle with this thing called the tyranny of distance is what my boss would call it. So basically if you think of Silicon Valley and San Francisco, like we're ahead of the knowledge curve here or we're like at the forefront of technology. And as you go further away, the the knowledge and the pace uh, sort of drops off. And that's not to say that other areas aren't as intelligent or smart. You just don't have the concentration and sort of the pace of innovation. So basically the effect of that is that you get um, technology adoption is slower and and knowledge adoption as well. So like the things we're talking about in Silicon Valley, you're not necessarily talking about in other areas of the world. And so with New Zealand, one of the first things we started doing is realizing, oh, we sit in San Francisco every single day. And just by nature of being here, you learn by osmosis. Like every time you jump in the lift or an Uber or you're sitting in a cafe, you just end up sitting next to people who are just talking about all of these topics. So you're just learning constantly. And then the second thing is that the cascading introductions. So one person introduces you to a person, they introduce you to three, ten, so on. And so we really wanted to take all of that back to New Zealand and, and just start teaching the lessons and getting people up to speed with the conversation that we were having there. And then I think the the... I guess the other thing we do in New Zealand is we actually start having a lot of events. 
Did you? So, oh, keep going. Sorry. Sorry. Well, what was your question? No, no, no. Keep going. So um, I guess, you know, part of being a community manager is you actually become like a data scientist without like the qualification. So it's basically your job to look at um, all of the data you're getting and figure out what is the right thing for your community at a certain time and what do they need to take the next step or grow to the next level or, you know, at what point do you put an offline community online? So you're constantly looking at data and numbers and metrics and it's pretty interesting what you start learning in terms of like behavioral science as well. And um, so after being at the Q landing pad for about a year, um, my boss and I, so my boss is the chairman of the board, he, uh, we, we were looking at the, the people coming through and we were like, but they're just not ready to be here or like their capability is not where it needs to be to expand to the US market. And um, we were noticing, so I don't know if you know anything about Kiwis, but like we have some cultural traits that are like very innate to us. So it's like we're very humble, we beat around the bush, or like we don't um, make direct us, we talk down about ourselves, like can be kind of self-deprecating. So an example of that is we've had some people pitch or talk about products and they're like, oh, my product's kind of good, you should maybe use it. And then Americans are like, if it's not great and the best, why would I Why would I use it? And it is the best. We just don't describe it that way, which is a, a nuance to us. Um, especially we noticed that, you know, Kiwis are just not very good at sales, marketing, and product management at the level they need to be to, you know, tackle the U.S. market with their businesses. And so we actually really wanted to go back and teach these, um, these topics. We were, like, looking around and we were like, okay, where do we find the people who we want to come speak? And then we're looking at our founders and we're like, ah, oh, you don't like, even you guys don't really know the stuff that we want to teach because we're talking about that, like very specific, like VP layer of talent where you start getting into the nitty gritty of like, you know, sales process and, you know, demand generation and these topics that are very, very specific and also like very niche and like kind of expert level, you know? Mm-hmm. And so then, by chance, got this email from um, our national airline in New Zealand. And um, they were like, oh, you know, we're coming over to San Francisco. We want to meet with Q Landing Pad. We're going to bring over seven of our direct reports from the marketing team. And I was like, just started cheering. I was like, yay, I got one. Because we get like all of these, we get quite a lot of like corporate groups coming over to learn about innovation um, from, the, from the Valley. And we get like school groups coming for the same thing. So we sort of get this whole. That's like, amazing. So you get to meet like a lot of really interesting people. So not just founders and startup folk, but you get to meet with like policymakers and the treasury and like the heads of corporates. And so it's, it's a pretty cool job actually for like variety and difference. So anyways, like we just, I pinged um, my boss and I was like, look, and New Zealand's coming. This is awesome. They like New Zealand's most loved brand. Really, really excited. And um, so he rang the dude and was like, oh, we're doing this thing. Do you want to be involved? And so they committed four flights. And we were like, whoa, this thing's getting way bigger than we thought it would be. We thought we'd get like 40 people in like three towns in New Zealand. And now we're bringing back US experts. And so basically we ended up going back and we sort of started this event called the Sales and Marketing Jam. And we wanted it to be a jam because we didn't want to have slides. And we didn't want, you know, that whole traditional speaker to audience type thing where it's a little bit vanilla. And we really wanted to get like really interactive with our audience. And so I phoned around, figured out a few friends who would come back and make really good additions and be like kind of experts in sales, marketing and product management. And then we put on this event and um, it just went so well. Like everyone loved it. They were a little bit like flabbergasted with the concept because you're like in a six hour panel all day. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
so everyone's like, how is this going to go? Like, what are we going to do? And um, it went really well. So fast forward a year and um, we've just, I actually just got back from New Zealand. We did it for the third time. And so where it's gone now is um, I got really, I'm very like process driven and very like automation everything. So anything that can be automated should be automated. And that's how you free up your time to do and really interesting stuff and solve interesting problems. And so what I did with the sales and marketing jam, I was like, we need to be answering the questions that people want to know today. So do you want to know about content marketing? Do you want to know about how to grow your sales team from one to five? Do you need to know like um, how to run your product roadmap or do you have a bloated code base because you've been making too many feature requests um, specific for different companies, but you actually need to bring it back in line, you know, like all these specific questions that founders have and, and teams have. And so basically when people sign up, they go through this obnoxious um, sign up form where it's like, <laughs> who are you? What business stage are you at? Like how much funding do you have? What do you want to know? Like if you have, oh yeah. And then basically the speakers before they walk into a room, they know exactly who's in the room, why they're there what stage they're at, if they're operating in the US, if they've been to a jam before. And so they just get this entire data download. So we go and have a curated con um, conversation based on who's in the room. And um, why that's awesome is because, you know, if you're doing an event in four different locations, you can theoretically have a fundamentally different conversation based on that region, the specific nuances of what they go through in that region and their, like, distance from certain resources or their um, – affiliation with like global networks and whatnot and um it's just really interesting and then after the survey we do um after the events we do another follow-up survey which is just as quirky and just as long and it's like how much do you enjoy it and why it's like what was your encore question tell me something quirky about yourself and so we've just seen really good results so our mps i don't know if you know anything about net promoters no. oh yeah 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 okay i thought you said mps i was like that's new <laughs> So our net promoter score hovers around 60, which is great. Oh, wow. And we we usually get around 25 to 30% of people just filling out our survey. We usually get between 250 to 350 um, attendees per um, per roadshow, which for New Zealand is actually really good because we're so wow. small. And 50% of our survey respondents also give us a testimonial, which is just unheard of. That um, is That is amazing. Yeah, so this program, I'm like, why is this working? Like, I started this as an experiment, and now it's going really well. And so it's actually a really good example of if you have a community, figure out exactly what they need, add value. And, you know, our sponsors are, like, our national airline, one of our biggest telcos. We've got, like, one of our best banks, um, our, like, government. And, you know, there's just all these people who jump on board because they're, like, you're actually building community, you're building capability. It's very obvious the level of conversation we're having with people is um, increasing quite dramatically. And um, so we've had some of our companies get accepted into like 500 startups, which is one of the best accelerators in the world and, you know, getting acquired or meeting these like really awesome connections um, in the US, which has really helped grow their business. So I'm like, yay, success. This is awesome. And uh, we do it every six months and they're just going to keep going. Yeah, that's amazing. Can you tell us, um, kind of looping back to what you said before about becoming a behavioral scientist and looking at the data, can you walk <laughs> us through an example of a time when you were looking at data and saying, okay, based on this information, here's how we need to move forward? 
Yeah, um, so I guess it comes to the start of the jam. So realizing that, um, you know, having a bit of an inkling that we're not very good at sales, marketing, product management, I went out to 50 founders that, you know, Kiwi founders, or it was about 25 Kiwi founders and like 25 sort of Kiwi Kiwis are also called New Zealanders, if you don't know. Um, I have to remember, like, jargon and stuff. Um, so also, like, 25 experts who were Kiwis working in these other jobs. And I would sit them down, and I sit them down for, like, two hours, and I just went through their business, like, with a fine-tooth comb. And I'm like, where are you at with marketing? Where are you at with sales? What would happen if we did this? And, like, what do you need to know? And then I did the the opposite with the, the you know, the Kiwi experts. And I was like, when Kiwis come to you, what do they talk about? And what are they missing? And what do you think, like, is a sort of San Francisco level startup that's doing really well and is well-funded? What do they have that you're not seeing over here? And so I went through and I looked at all of the themes. And I was like, ah, oh, there are some very obvious themes here. And so, you know, when you've got those themes, they, you can just group them into, like, you know, maybe 10 and that's a bucket and you're like what do I do with this and you know the logical thing is oh I can create an event or I can um, you know create a, a small group or a coffee group for these 10 founders who are struggling with this one problem so then you get really into like segmentation and specifics so like our community has over 3,000 people probably close to closer to 4,000 now and um, I can at any stage so I could be in like Amsterdam and put on an event in New Zealand by being like cool, you 10 founders or people, uh, SaaS founders at a $3 million funding level with, you know, like 500K MRR or, you know, something. And I can be like, go have coffee because you all have something to talk about and I don't even need to be there. So when you're getting to that level of like segmentation and organization and and like the, the, the depths of community where it's kind of automated, but you just know who your people are and what they're doing and what they need, like that starts to become a really interesting proposition um, if you look at it at scale or if you're a bigger organization um, and you've got these pipelines of like millions of people where you're like well how can you mobilize your people to actually do great stuff and um, one thing that I really like talking about with some of my um, corporates or other people is like you don't have to spend money on stuff to add value. You actually just figure out what your customers need and want and start sort of pulling levers to actually give them, you know, added value. What, um, for you, I know you talked about systems and so you're just speaking about it. The process has gotten so good that you can be in Amsterdam and connect these people in New Zealand. What are some of the things that you've found to be really helpful for you in terms of setting up processes and being efficient and being organized? Whew, tough question. I was actually <laughs> thinking about this today. It's like, you know, as, as we grow up, um, I'm 25 and uh, I've, you know, been struggling with some personal stuff lately but at the same time, my ability to execute on all of these things at the same time, I was like, wow. So coming down, sitting at this podcast, I was like, you know, in the back of my mind, I've got personal stuff going on. But then I'm like, oh, you know, you've just found three houses that you potentially will look at that maybe you'll buy one when you go back to New Zealand. You just got like a financial advisor to look at shares. You're looking at investing in some startups. And then at the same time, you know, you're running the Kiwi Landing Pad. You're working on all these other projects. And like your ability to just kind of like go, you know, run at life whenever it's all going in multiple directions, I was like, how could we do that? Because I used to be just like crushed by like one bit piece of bad news and it would like take over my entire life. And I feel like our ability as we grow up and live in these places and sort of be entrepreneurs and, and we get better at this stuff is, is kind of amazing. Um, so how do you 
structure your time. I'm really interested in tools. Um, so community management-wise, um, I really like a platform called Mobilize. Um, mm. I use it for my community. It's a, it's a grouping tool, so you can have specific groups, and it's also like a communication tool at the same time. So you know, I can invite everyone to an event based uh, from the platform, mm. and I can email people directly from the platform. Um, I use Crowdcast for webinars. So another thing that I started doing off the back of the sales and marketing jam was when you're asking all of these people questions about what they need to know, you can take all of those themes and then you can be like, okay, we're going to do a webinar over here, which is just a lower time commitment. And then that actually forms the basis of your content strategy. Um, so for people who struggle with trying to figure out what their content strategy needs to be, that's a, a really good avenue is actually asking your community what you want, what they want to know. And then you form content on the back of it and you'll get like higher open rates, higher engagement rates, all of that stuff. Um I guess I kind of, some people will laugh at this, um, but I started getting really good with my calendar and scheduling things in. And I also block out, like every day I block out lunch um, for an hour, even if I don't take it. It's just nice knowing it's there. Mm. Um, I'm a big fan of not being in the office for a day a week. Um, I think it's just good for your growth. Like if you have a writing day, um, oh, yeah. I was like forgetting what I write about all the time. So I just wrote this series called The Mobility Movement, which is all about how you can get more mobility back in your life. Um, so it kind of goes on from when I was location independent, a lot of my friends were like, oh, are you a trust fund baby? Like how are you affording to travel around the world? And I was like, it's not that hard, you know, you just – I had a full um, like travel budget, like profit and loss spreadsheet running when I was <laughs> traveling, <laughs> which is pretty geeky. Like Courtney K actually laughs at me, but then she was like, "Oh, this is actually brilliant. Can you like show me how to structure my finances?" But so um, when I was location independent, I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, I actually want um, everyone else to have the ability to start doing this for themselves because it's actually not that hard. You just need to spend time on it." Um, I was actually in Buenos Aires in Argentina this year, and I was sitting across from these two lawyers, and they were like. Location independence is great. doesn't really suit us. We're a bit more tethered to our lifestyle. You know, we can't just take off. You know, we, we have to be settled in a community. And then so I started playing around with the concept of the mobility movement, which is like, okay, how can you start looking at your behavioral patterns and your weeks and days and months and be like, what if you just had Fridays and had like a three-day weekend? Or what if you could be somewhere for two weeks and do your job online and then you could come back and do all the stuff you needed to do in person. Mm. So I started writing these posts around like the battle of the 40 hour work week and kind of measuring and results and, you know, started paying a lot of attention to kind of like behavioral patterns in my own energy. So, you know, on Mondays I am super strategic, super focused and it's like my non people day. And I do all of my really big ticket strategy stuff. And I also like working for like 12 to 15 hours on a Monday because I just am in flow. That kind of follows on to Tuesday. Wednesday nights, I'm usually quite creative. So I will sort of write a little bit. Thursday, I am really social. So I'm an introvert. And so I have this one day where I'm just like more social <laughs> than the rest. And so I have all my meetings on Thursdays. And it just turns out great. Um Fridays, I'm typically fairly exhausted and lower energy, so that's when I do all my admin. Ah, I like it. Do you, um, was that something that it took you a while to figure out, or what was that process of coming to that conclusion for you? I think I burnt out entirely, and um, then I started paying. I did this like experiment. Um, it was called the washing machine or like the tumble dryer, where I was like, 
I had so much stuff on like late last year. I was like, oh, you know, I'm running the Kiwi Learning Pad. I've got like four other jobs. I'm studying. I've got all this stuff. Like, how can I optimize my life and time to a point where I start the tumble dryer and I just add things in and I can like be healthy and it's for three months and I will come out the other end and be fine knowing that I'm very much pushing the extremes of like, you know, um, my body and my mind and it failed miserably because I just got so like overtired and I think I was sleeping for four hours a night and I was exercising a lot like had a personal trainer was just doing way too much stuff and so I looked at it and I was like well how can you actually do this sustainably and that's how I started getting into this stuff um but I think it's really powerful it's like if you uh so the, the battle is a 40-hour work week is really interesting because if you look at um, how we're traditionally set up in society, you know, when you're younger, you're told you should be the first person in the office and the last to leave because that's good work ethic. And I actually agree with that. But there's a point at which that um, there, there's like a point of diminishing returns, right? And there's like you've proved yourself and where do you want to go next? And so I was like, okay, well, if I get really efficient and I can actually do my job in 20 hours, what do I do with the other three days? And I think having that discussion with your boss and stuff, they kind of don't get it. So that's why I wrote all about this because I was like, oh, in theory, I could do my job in about 20 hours and then I've got these other 20 hours that I need to do something with. And I think it's just restructuring and resetting expectations. And like, if you are going to do your job in 20 hours, you need to be able to measure that meaningfully. So if when you go and have these conversations with people, you can kind of prove this because it's a bit of a weird thing to do. And I think it's pretty, still pretty new um, today. I just was thinking in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, like, you have so much wisdom. I'm like, gosh, I wish I had half of this when I was like, like, just even now, I'm like, oh gosh, that's a great way. And then I started like getting on a tangent in my mind a little bit thinking like, well, maybe I should look at, I should, I should try looking at, um, testing out having Monday's be a 12 to 15 hour day and see what that does versus always thinking in my mind, okay, it's eight to five, but like maybe figuring out something different and completely flipping it on its head might stir up more creativity and allow for even more productivity. And then also my next question too is then how do you learn to say no or what do you say no to and then what's the process? I feel like I've only really started learning about this now um, because I get a lot of stuff coming my way and at the same time I can't help myself with getting involved in just so much stuff because I'm like there's an easier way to do this and if you think about it like this you should do it this way and then I get involved and I'm like oh shit I don't have time for anything anymore (laughs) and I think what I realized is like there are when you start looking when you look at a a lot of things an aggregate um, you know you've got a lot of incoming and you can sort of look at a span of projects you're like okay this one is actually ready to go this one is about a year away because they're just in planning mode or they're not going to get their shit together. And then so you start realizing and setting a bit of a timeline of being like, I should really focus on this one because it's there. And then it really comes down to quite simply for me, like what pays me money um, and, you know, what pays my bills. And so my loyalty is generally to, you know, my boss. My boss looks after me, pays my bills, very good to me, has been very loyal and supportive of me for the last, like, two years. I'm like, I will do everything for you first because, you know, at the end of the day, you are my man and this is my job. And so it kind of goes through a process of that. So I guess the next thing is, like, who gives you the most and supports you the most and you give them the most. So it's not really about giving and taking for me because I just pour so much giving into everything that I do. But it's more about, like, 
do you have a mentor or do you have people who just give you so much like love or support or kind of fulfillment in something? And then you sort sort of start making decisions for that. Um, other stuff, I don't know if I've really learned how to say no, but that's I just I don't pull up my docket too much now because it just gets too hard. And I think the point at which you start dropping the ball is the point at which you should start probably paying attention to some of the stuff that um, you should let go of. And um, that becomes very obvious. And I'm someone who's, I'm a perfectionist. I really don't like to let people down. So I feel really bad and like disappointed in myself if I start letting people down. And I think, you know, having that conversation with someone, if you've ever had that conversation, is like really hard. Like you can be very humble about it. But yeah, I I think that's my process. (laughs) What uh, second to last question I have for you is what's been a book that you've read that has impacted you the most? Um, I actually have two, so I think um, my best friend will really laugh at me if she listens to this. So she just worked on the book launch of a book called Designing Your Life, and mm. it's all about like how you design your life. And they go through. I'm on like chapter three. So what was really fascinating about this book? You know, I've been through many lifestyle design processes, evidently from like location independence and the mobility movement, and obviously creating my dream job for the stage that I'm at. You know, sort of get to travel around the world based on my own back, but also have a job that allows me the flexibility to do that. Um, so designing your life is all around like giving you the mindsets of a designer to go through and design your life. What was funny is, you know, um, I think one of your questions that you sent me was all about like what is your purpose and do you think about that often and what does it mean? And, you know, I just turned 25, so I went through this, like, quarter-life crisis that I really didn't (laughs) think existed this year and it was, like, exponential and just – like threw me for a six for like a month. I think it's I went the to- weird that that quarter life is the weirdest thing, and I think when you are also an entrepreneur, you might experience those a little bit more frequently because sometimes you're like, wait, what is the purpose? What is the direction? Yeah. Why am I well- doing this? And then you get older and you realize, like, wow, there are set norms as as people and as this world and the souls and like the humans get older, you start encountering a lot more. I've, my experience is um, not, not, might be resistance, but maybe not. But like I, the optimistic that you carry when you're young and then you're going through like adult years, you're like, wait, no, I'm going to stay optimistic. I swear I'm going to do it. I'm going to choose optimistic or like to be optimistic. And it like, is this a whole interesting observation that happens? I, I don't know if listeners are listening and they've experienced that. Like, comment somewhere on social media and let me know that, like, I'm not the only crazy one. Not that well, it's crazy, I caught but. myself this morning having, like, a really philosophical conversation with myself around, like, three different topics. I was like, are you really doing this right now? This is really weird. Like, when did you get so philosophical and you're, like, over your morning breakfast, you know, when you're, like, about to go to work? Um, So Designing Your your Life was great. I mean, I'm at Chapter 3, and one of the things that it taught me was, um, you know, I I ponder work and what's next all the time, but then they ask you to fill in this gauge. They're like, you have to know where you are now, so it's like a how are you doing chicken, and there's four meters or gauges. There's, I think, health, work, play, and love, and I filled them all out, and I was like, oh my God, you've been looking at the wrong problem. And so they talk about, you know, most people look at the wrong problem. And I was like, I have no play in my life. It's not that like work is like, I need something. So my work gauge is like full. My love gauge is like two thirds or like three quarters full. My health gauge is like three quarters full. And I was like, zero on the play. And I was like, oh, duh. Like, 
no wonder like why are you thinking about work and what's next like you're actually pretty fulfilled there right now you actually have no play in your life and that's manifesting in weird ways so I think that was a bit Mm. of a wake-up call for me um the second book which I read and it's kind of a bit geeky but I read the um the millionaire next door and I think it's it's one combination of those words and basically it's all about like your relationship with money and teaching you about what what a millionaire is and some of the I guess tools and things you can do to become a millionaire and um what's really fascinating is the people who you think are millionaires usually aren't millionaires because they look like millionaires the people who aren't millionaires they or like the people who are millionaires, they tend to not look like millionaires. And so amassing a million dollars in well in like net worth in your lifetime is actually pretty hard. And so it teaches all of these sort of lessons and learnings. And I just thought it was really fascinating. Like last year, um, I had zero dollars because I worked really hard and I had a job and I was like, I'm gonna spend everything I earn because, you know, I deserve it. And then I met Pascal. You know oh. Pascal kind of. <laughs> Oh yeah. And He's he was a great almost, guy third investment property and he was 25 like a year older than me and I was like shit I need to get my life together this is terrible how are you doing so well and I was like looking at you know investment and I was like oh well I mean to invest you need money I would have like $200 or something in my bank account and like $6,000 in my um in my like retirement savings I was like well well you know where your first task is you know you need to save some money and so then You know, I was was like, set myself a goal. This was like September. I was like, I'm going to have $20,000 at the end of the year. And I was like, this is unrealistic. How can you get $20,000 by the end of the year? And then so I had one of these school groups through. And, um, you know, one of the parents was like, oh, have you heard about the Ames Awards? And I was like, what's the Ames Awards? And they're like, oh, you know, it's a group on the North Shore of Auckland. So where where I'm from in my hometown, it's the biggest city in New Zealand. And they, were, they give away grants to people who are achieving excellence in six areas. So like arts, music, education, innovation, um, sports and service to community. And I was like, oh, weird. I don't think I could do this, you know. Like I don't really achieve anything. Like mm. this was before I learned anything about like personal branding and being able to actually share my story in a way that's like confident but not arrogant and that's meaningful. And so I applied for this award after much deliberation and I won Oh my and gosh. with the award, you get $15,000. <gasps> yeah, and I was like, saving five grand, not a problem. Saving 20 grand, massive problem, not going to happen. Just no way it could happen. And I was like, wow, I made $20,000 in like three months because I won an award. And then so I, was, I just started learning about like hacking your career to a new level. And like, if you look at community and stuff, and for the people who are part of communities or who want to be in communities, like community is the best thing you can do in life. Because at the end of the day, everything comes down to people, like investing in people, helping people, giving back. And like, the greatest thing about awards is it's not really about the awards or the money. It's actually about the community you inherit from the awards. So now I'm part of a network of, you know, 20 years of winners who are phenomenal people, you know, because they self-select themselves to go into these awards. And that's really amazing. So I actually just won that award again, um, back to back, which is kind of cool. Oh, my gosh. Um, And so now I've started to get involved in all of these projects, and I think it's a bit of a catalyst. Um, It becomes a catalyst for change, right? So now I'm setting up a youth innovation center on the North Shore of Auckland, which is all around helping kids of excellence sort of 
get work experience and change their lives with like mentoring and you know we're going to have a robotics lab and a co-working space and entrepreneurs and residents so it's all about like innovation and plugging these kids who are super talented into this community of business leaders from this place in New Zealand and using it as like a catalyst for change so can you target like social issues and um, really create a bit of a movement and also a pilot for other areas and other places in the country so it's all really exciting I would say you know be part of a community. It's the best thing you can do for yourself and your brand and like as a human and to meet people. Yeah. And that might, that is exactly why you're the global community manager, no doubt. Um, one, the last question I have for you is if your life was a movie title and it could be one that's existing or not in like in existence, what would it be? I'm really bad with movies. No, it can be you, it can be made up. You can make it up. Oh, I don't know. Okay, so this is a bit of an outlier. So I really like daydreaming. I think it's like really powerful to be able to like stretch the mind. But I have a fascination with like really big problems. So I travel a lot, you know, go to about 16 countries a year. And I really like investing in community. And if you're going to learn about community, the best place to do that is looking at like tribal culture and mm. you know social hierarchies that we just don't have in the western world and um so i went to kenya about two years ago i've actually just been back this year as well and um you know i was really struck by the slums um you know where like two million people live um in nairobi and i was like theoretically this is like one of the most efficient ways to live if only like the standard of living was higher and like how do you turn a slum into a sustainable community that actually takes the world by storm and starts producing stuff and an output that's actually higher than many other places and a friend of mine actually put, has just been to India and said something to their similar, similar effect that the ability of a slum to be a really core cool part of a, a city's sustainability in terms of like processing rubbish and waste and stuff. Um, and I was really taken by that. And I was like, okay, so the world going where it's going, fast forward 50 years, what if slums are actually sustainable communities and, and thriving? And so I think my movie title would be something to that effect. You know, how do you take these massive problems and, and try solving them, not in like a white way or a Western way, but more in like a using the technology and, and community um at the core and, and figuring out like what do these people need and what what do they want and also how can you make them thrive in the in the current conditions that they have by increasing them by like an order of magnitude but in a different way not just giving them all houses but you know just making a slightly better environment but teaching them skills and community which they already kind of inherently have by existing in these places that was a really long winded answer I'm gonna call you that I'm gonna say it's gonna be named problem solver <laughs> um <laughs> I have a few things. So I, um, just like wrapping up, I guess, um, yeah. you know, I'm someone who struggles with like perception and like knowing what I want to do. And so I think how I've, um, sort of, I've had some really great advice, um, lately. Um, so one of my pieces of advice is to put yourself out there and invest in people. Um, and you only don't know something until you learn it, but I would really encourage you to find one really exceptional mentor, um, it makes all the difference to to anything you're doing in life. And, you know, if, if they're there personally or professionally, um, it's really, really helpful. Um, so what was I going to say? Um, the second thing was something, oh, yeah, about perception. So, you know, if you're young and old, like, you actually just have to start listening to 
feedback and you know I call it um, the difference between intellectualizing feeling and actually feeling and I, I think mm. you know I, it's, it's an interesting topic to explore we probably need more time but it's basically the difference between like if say Amanda if you told me that Courtney was kind and then I saw her in an act of kindness I would you know one is intellectualizing a feeling and the other is actually feeling the feeling because you see it for your own eyes. And this is something that I've been through lately. And I'm like, okay, so if we want to understand our own personal perception, um, I feel like, you know, as, as women, sometimes we can be fairly insecure if we're, we'll go back to this point we were talking about before. So if you're at the point at which you are, you're at a certain stage, but you're achieving exponential growth. So you have a stretch goal and anything in between is actually vulnerability. So anyone who hits you in your, your vulnerability space, that is just straight insecurities. Then it's like, what do you do with that? Um, and I feel like that's where paying attention to the feedback that people are giving you. So if someone says you look nice, actually take it on board and be like, I look nice today. Or if someone's like, oh, you're really good at blah, like take that on board as like feedback for yourself. And then, you know, kind of attach yourself to that and be like, this, this is who I am based on what people think of me and sort of measure that about yourself. Um, we have to manage our self-talk and, oh. and all of that good stuff, you know? <laughs> That um, that whole thing in the back of the mind. <laughs> yep. And then the last thing is, um, I've been doing. Um, I'm a big fan of three things. So, um, love languages. Like, figure out what your love languages are. Read the book. Um, it really helps for personal relationships and professional relationships. Um, you know how to give and receive um, from someone, um, and that just makes for a positive interaction. Um, do it with all your friends. It's actually really valuable. The second thing is value cards. So you can get these cards that are like, there's 44 cards, they have a value, they have a description of the value. And basically what happens is you have, you go through a pro process of elimination and you end up with five cards. And that process is actually really hard because you're like, all of these things are important. How could I possibly choose just five? Um, but it's actually five that are important to you. You sort them into piles of um, least important, more important, most important until you get five. And you start going through a fascinating process where you end up with like three cards that are kind of the same and you have to toss up whether or not which is the right one for you. And it's not values based on like who you want to be or what you think you are. It's like very real, very like true values. And so I had like curiosity, adventure and independence. And what I came down to was I wasn't really that independent because I wanted to be. It was the nature of the activities I was doing that actually made me independent. I wasn't crazy adventurous, but the nature of me wanting to go explore places made me adventurous. So I ended up being curious because I was like, well, I'm curious about traveling and concepts and theories and all this stuff and like people, I like unraveling people. And so I ended up with curiosity, but I didn't know that. And so why this is powerful is um, I use the example of, I was in New Zealand about six months ago and someone was having a meeting with this guy and I was like, well, that guy's a dick. And then the person I was talking to was like, oh, I'm, am I allowed to swear on this? I'm sorry. Oh, no, you're totally fine. I'm just laughing that you're like, that guy was a dick. And I'm, I don't usually say that out loud, but this is kind of the, the moral of the story. And so that person was like, oh, that's a bit negative. And then came back after we did my value cards and was like, one of your values is learnings and growth. Why do you think that person's a dick? And I was like, he doesn't learn his lessons. You know, he's done the same thing five times. It's really annoying. He should just learn his lessons. And he was like, oh, you're not negative. You're actually, that person just rubs up against your values. And I wish that I'd known this from when I was like 17 because it would have like explained 95% of my like life, oh. you know. 
oh. life issues because I'm like, oh, imagine if you knew that like people just rubbed up against your values and that's fine because then you wouldn't be obsessed with like people liking you. You'd just be like, oh, yep, we just don't have a win on a match. Sorry. Like, you know, that is so I like the reframing of that because it's pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm like thinking of so many, I'm thinking of a handful of things, particularly one that really like will frustrate me. And yeah, it's cause I, I know now I know what I value. That's the reason why I'm not upset like the person, but the value. Yes. Okay, great. It's I so like good. That. Right. Yeah. And then the third thing was a friend of mine recently was like, you should take a strengths test. And so back to your movie title thing. So I took the strengths test and I've been going through a bit of this lately because I'm like, oh, what do I care about? What are the industries that I could work in? Blah, blah, blah. And I came across this thing where I was like, I just like problem solving. I don't really care about the industry or the business, but I do care about problem solving. I want a really meaty problem to solve. And so I did the strengths test. And then it's like, your number one quality is problem solving. And I was like, <sighs> Yay. Awesome. I know myself. That's so cool. Um, but yeah, so I guess I would, I would do those things and I would do them like as soon as possible because they really help you get to get to know yourself, um, a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Do you, <laughs> do you have any questions for me? <laughs> no, that, that was it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed our conversation and it just, I'm so excited for you and everything that's, that lies ahead. Thanks. I hope that um, we we uh, got covered covered a little bit. There was a that conversation went in a way that I just did not expect it to go. But I mean, that's the that's, that's the beauty of these things. <laughs> yeah. Hey, she did it her way, listeners. This holiday season, she did it her way is partnering with Benet. Benet was co-founded by Michelle Blue, who was a guest on the She Did It Her Way podcast. And Benet was born in 2013. It's a collection of scarves inspired by the culture where this all began and committed to providing an education to girls in Ghana by sponsoring tuition, books, supplies, and the uniforms for the girls to continue their education and fulfill their dreams. So every time you purchase a scarf, you help a girl in Ghana with tuition and education. So from now until Christmas... Benet is offering 15% off to the She Did It Her Way podcast community. All you have to do is when you go to benetscarves.com, apply the code HERWAY at checkout to receive the 15% off. Thanks for tuning in to the She Did It Her Way podcast. Did you like this episode? Head on over to iTunes.com to leave us a rating and a review. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out shedidherwaypodcast.com where you can subscribe to our email list so you can receive the inside scoop on our latest episode released each Monday. Now, do us a favor and go make it a great week.